I'm Susan Brown. I'm Michaela Joy O'Shea. And I'm Jay Yee. You're listening to Beyond the Fog Radio. Our podcast about the untold stories of San Francisco's long history from the people that have helped shape it. Whether you're new to San Francisco or have lived here your entire life, join us as we share the stories of our city by the bay. Poetry. (laughs) I wish I was a poet. (laughs) I mean, I like poetry. I used to take AP courses in English and I used to talk about poetry like I knew what I was talking about. But in all truth, I'm just an admirer. How about you, Susan? I like poetry and I like listening to poetry. I can't talk about it with any intelligence whatsoever because I know very little about poetry. But I do know that we have a history here in San Francisco with the beat poets from the 50s. I don't know anything about them, but I know that that's an important part of history. What about you, Jay? I appreciate poetry because in the Chinese language, the way it's written is pretty much poetry. It's kind of built into the culture and also during war times where we don't write exactly what's happening. It's it's hidden in the poetry where there may be a war strategy or a status update on what's happening during the times. So poetry has that kind of significance in that there's always a hidden meaning or a double entendre or requires an intellectual to think, right? Mm -hmm. Just like what you're pointing to. Poetry is of the intellect, I'd say. That's true. Wait a minute. Let's actually back the train up for a second. We are all actually very familiar with poetry. We all love music. True. That's true. Music is poetry. If you think about Bob Marley, who talks about the times of what it is to be of African descent and the injustice at those times and all of the people who sang about the Vietnam War, all of that is poetry with music. So we are all familiar with poetry. We are definitely. I love it. Yeah. We kick off our Local Heroes series with Nina Serrano, poet, storyteller, and media producer. She's also the mother of my two childhood friends, Valerie Landau and Greg Landau. Her life's work revolves around improving humanity. In November of 2023, Nina graciously invited us to her beautiful home, to share her inspired journey as a political activist, poet, and writer. Our former guest, Nina's daughter, Valerie Landau, was our guest host. My name is Nina Serrano. I'm a poet. I produce radio programs. I've been a filmmaker. I am the great-grandmother of eight children and grandmother of seven, and I had two children. I'm married to Paul Richards, and I live in Vallejo, California. Welcome to Beyond the Fog Radio. Thanks. Oh, thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be here. <laughs> so excited in my to own house. In your own, in house, your own house, right? Yeah. Short That's commute. Perfect. Yeah. And Valerie, thank you for joining us. Oh, thank you. It's always a pleasure. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a big fan of Beyond the Fog. <laughs> well, we're a big fan of your episode. We're really excited to have already talked to you and have you be a quote-unquote guest host here with your mom. 
And this is our Local Heroes series. Well, I'm very flattered to be considered a hero. Uh, I think it's well-deserved. Yeah, I do too. So tell us a little bit about the beginnings of your life. Where were you born and raised, and when did you come to the Bay Area? Well, I was born in 1934 in New York City. I came to the Bay Area around 1963 and have been here ever since. Though I came to San Francisco, and I've also lived in Oakland, and I'm now living in Vallejo. Oh my gosh, 1963. Can we talk about what San Francisco was like at that time, and and what drew you out here? Well, it was known as a very exciting place of poetry, nonconformity, protest. All of those things appealed to me very much, and so much physical beauty. When did you meet your first husband, Sal Landau? I met Saul in 1954 on a bus going to upstate New York. We were on a bus to be counselors and staff at a summer children's summer camp. Oh, wow. So you were pretty young then. Yes, I was 19. Oh, gosh. And what brought you both to California in 1963? We had heard so much about it that we decided we wanted, we were sick of Wisconsin winters. (laughs) (laughs) And did you have some friends that also had moved from Wisconsin to the Bay Area, like Carl Sagan and Lynn Margolis? Yes, I did have those friends. I don't remember where I met them, and they lived in the Bay Area. So you were actually in Wisconsin with Saul at the time? Yes. Okay. We were at the University of Wisconsin. When did you get married? Oh, we got married in 1954. I don't remember. So right after you met? Yes, soon after. And then you raised Valerie and Greg in Noe Valley? Yes, in the Mission and Noe Valley. What was the Mission in Noe Valley like then? Warm, friendly, diverse. We first moved on to Dolores Street, which was a beautiful street lined with palm trees. What were you doing at that time? Raising a family and... uh, Volunteering at KPFA? Yes, I think I had radio programs on KPFA. Is that like public radio? Yes, it's community radio station. Okay. KPFA is still around. Is KPFA? Oh, yeah. Oh, I'm sorry. Pardon my ignorance there. (laughs) (laughs) Tell us a little bit about how you became a poet. I became a poet later in life, in my late 30s. I was in Cuba, and I became friends with a Salvadoran poet, Roque Dalton. Roque Antonio Dalton Garcia was a Salvadoran poet, journalist, essayist, communist activist, and intellectual. He is considered one of Latin America's most compelling poets. We decided to write a play together. He didn't know how, and I said, oh, it's very easy. And we wrote a video play together, and then we brought it to the Cuban TV station, and they agreed to put it on. They mounted it in three days, so it was a bit of a mess, but it was very exciting. So after that, I felt I was a writer because I had written a play. And I wrote a poem to Roque Dalton just before he left for El Salvador for guerrilla warfare and was killed. And that poem was published in one of the free newspapers, the community newspapers that were popping up all over San Francisco. 
And that's how I became a poet. And there was a very activist poet, Roberto Vargas, in the mission, and he invited me to be part of many of the poetry readings that he was involved in all over the city. And so I started going, and that's how I became a poet, because I couldn't just have this one poem. I had to keep writing poems, and reading with all those other poets, I was always inspired to write more poetry. Tell us about what you write about. Well, whatever came to my mind, since I was a political activist, a lot of it was political, but a lot of it was other things that come up. How did you get involved in politics? I don't know. I feel like I was always involved in it. It was an era of protest, the 60s. There were a lot of flaming issues that were appealing to all the young people around me, including me and my husband. And we were involved in a lot of those movements. And so it seemed natural to write about what I was concerned about. I think the first movement that I remember you being involved with, in fact, it's one of my first San Francisco memories, is attending the protest at the Sheraton Palace Hotel where people were protesting segregation. That's right. It was a sit-in, and I didn't know it then, but my second husband was also present at that protest. Really? (laughs) I didn't know him at the time. Is that Paul here? Yes. Oh, wow. Then you became a activist for the anti-Vietnam War movement. Yes, I've always been against war, horrified by it, repelled by it, especially the Vietnam War. I made a truck theater during the Vietnam War, got a group of people who would act out a play. We would pull up at a parking spot and turn on our loudspeaker, get a crowd, and perform our little anti-war play. Then we'd get back in the truck and drive off to the next spot. (laughs) Wow. Even before the truck theater, you were involved with a play called Changeover, which led to the writing of the Fixin' to Die Rag. Can you tell about how you asked Country Joe to write a song for you? Oh, yes. Country Joe McDonald was the lead singer in the 1960s psychedelic rock group Country Joe and the Fish. He went on to record 33 albums and has written hundreds of songs. He performed at the Avalon Ballroom, the Fillmore Auditorium, and the 1967 Monterey Pop Festival. He also performed in both the original Woodstock Music Festival in 1969 and the reunion in 1979. His best-known song is Feel Like I'm Fixin' to Die Rag, which he wrote in 1965. Country Joe was a popular protest singer at the time, and I asked him to write a song for the play, and he did. This was before he was popular. He wrote the song for the play, and then the next song that he wrote, since he was just in that songwriting zone, (laughs) was the Fixin' to Die rag. So he says that that first song inspired the second song, which he then played at Woodstock. (laughs) And he became famous. That's amazing. That is amazing. And also the mime troupe that Valerie and Greg talked to us about. Can we go there? Can we talk about the mime troupe? It sounds like everything you're talking about. I didn't start the mime troupe. I joined the mime troupe. That was started by R.G. Davis. And I directed some plays, but there was a lot of clashing in there because of sexism, which has always been a problem. And at the point that Ronnie and I clashed, I backed out. 
then I just started doing theater projects of my own without the mime troupe. And then you've also traveled to Cuba. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Who started that for you? I think your first trip to Cuba was in 1960 when I was a baby. I think you were working for the Hands-Off Cuba Committee in Madison, Wisconsin. And Saul was working on a documentary that never got made. And after being a single parent all summer, you decided to come to Cuba with me, Greg, and Beryl, my aunt. We were all sharing one hotel room with a person who was helping Saul make the documentary that never got made. You were walking down the street and ran into James Weinstein. He was like, my father owns a condo. In those days, there was no such thing as condo. It was a brand new idea at what later became the Sierra Maestra Hotel. And you guys stayed there, which was a great relief after being holed up with so many generations in one little hotel room. In Cuba in 1960. That's wild. The earliest days of the revolution. In 1959, President Batista was ousted by a revolution in Cuba led by Fidel Castro. In October of 1965, the Communist Party of Cuba was formed with Fidel Castro as their leader. And then I guess the next time we went was in 1968 when Saul was making the film on Fidel. Saul went as part of a film crew for KQED to make a documentary on Cuba, but they wound up staying longer because Fidel kept postponing all of their appointments, and Saul got lonely, so he asked me to come and bring the children, and I did. You were the first woman to go on a jeep ride with Fidel after he took power for two weeks across all of Cuba. Yes, we spent two weeks driving around Cuba in his Jeep, and he talked a great deal. He talked all of that time. There was seldom a moment that he was quiet. (laughs) (laughs) And what was he talking about? Like Everything that came into his mind. He had opinions and thoughts about everything under the sun. So you speak Spanish fluently? Not that fluent. Okay. But he was still talking. That's right. He talked without stop. <laughs> and where were Valerie and Greg at the time? Were they when, holding the boom mic or no, what? No. During that two-week period, they found a place for them at a summer camp. And then at one point, when we were traveling with Fuithdale, we were near that summer camp. So I asked if we couldn't detour and go visit them, and we did. I did meet Fidel on several occasions. We watched the moon landing with him in the presidential palace. When we brought the finished film that was edited, he invited us to come and watch the moon landing and then to play the film for him. Would you say you became friends with him, you and Saul? I never considered him an intimate friend, maybe because there was very little exchange. It was mostly that he just talked. (laughs) And to me, friendship involves exchange. That's very important. But I think two things came out of that meeting. One, I remember him being very shocked at all the ads for Tang. I remember him saying, if this is saying that Tang sponsored the moon landing, does that mean that if it wasn't for Tang, they wouldn't have gone to the moon? (laughs) It's a valid question. And also, I think he was already starting to watch the candidacy of Chilean President Salvador Allende. 
which later led to us going to Chile. Yes, he felt that they were planning to vote in revolution rather than make a revolutionary movement. They were making a presidential movement and running Salvador Allende as the candidate. And he thought that was going to be the first nonviolent revolution in Latin America. Salvador Allende was a democratic socialist who, when elected, was described as the first Marxist elected to be president in a liberal democracy in Latin America. He was succeeded by August Pinochet, who overthrew President Allende in 1973 in a coup d'etat, which killed many of Allende's people and ultimately turned Chile into a dictatorship. Saul and I were very excited about that and decided we'd like to make a film about that and that, in fact, we would make this film together as equals. We were joined by Jim Beckett, and we went to Chile with the hope of making the movie. We had a contact there who had worked at KQED, a Chilean. From there, we rented a large house and had all the meals for the film there. We usually had about 40 people for lunch, There was a staff that came with the house when we rented it, so the housekeeping was taken care of, and the lunches were taken care of. And there was a Chilean director, and he would never attend any of the scenes that I was directing. I found that very annoying. I kept running into sexism along the way everywhere I went, and I just had to confront it but I didn't really know how to confront it. There wasn't really a woman's movement that you could get behind and easily available rhetoric about it. You never really felt you were being taken as seriously as everybody else. I always felt I had to push, that I was always pushing. That didn't always feel comfortable. Thank you for being a pioneer for women. Oh, you're welcome. (laughs) It wasn't voluntary. It was self-defense. I had a friend, Lourdes Portillo, a beautiful person, a woman born in Mexico. She was married to a dentist in the Mission District, and she was raising three boys, and she wanted to be a filmmaker. And she knew that I had experience and background in film, and she invited me to write a film with her called After the Earthquake, about the beginnings of the revolution in Nicaragua and about the Nicaraguan San Francisco community. During the Vietnam War movement, Jane Fonda had contacted the mime troupe because she wanted to find people who wanted to help her put on anti-war material for the soldiers because she was traveling to the various army camps. I was very excited about that. My children were already teenagers, So I went to Hollywood and traveled around with her to the various army camps, putting on skits with various movie stars that joined her in this effort to entertain the soldiers. And that led you to meeting Judy Binder, who you also wrote a play with. That's right. Judy Binder was a L.A.-based writer, and she was part of the Jane Fonda experience. She had very much wanted to move to the Bay Area. She was looking for a more bohemian lifestyle, 
And so when she did move to the Bay Area, we started writing together. And we wrote The Chicken Made of Rags. That was the most wonderful thing I've ever done. The Chicken Made of Rags was the story that my uncle used to tell me when I was a child about a little chicken made of rags <laughs> who was on her way somewhere. To a banquet at the big hotel. Yes. Okay. And along the way, she would meet these different characters that would join her. And finally, when she got there, she realized that they were not planning to just welcome them to the feast. They were going to feast on them. And so she rebelled and won her freedom and the freedom for her other animal friends. And my brother, who had also heard these stories as a child, decided to write the music for the play. And so he wrote a bunch of songs for the play, and we recorded the whole play onto a CD, The Chicken Made of Rags. And it is still beloved by all of my great-grandchildren. It's so wonderful. Greg produced the music, and it's really a journey through San Francisco. So this chicken meets all her friends, and they walk through the city, they go to the park, they go on a cable car, and so it's really a journey through San Francisco. And you came up with this story, or is it based on childhood stories? It was based on the childhood stories, but I embroidered it with Judy Binder. Yeah, that's wonderful. And then while I was in Cuba, I became part of the Julius and Ethel Rosenberg Brigade that performed plays about the Rosenberg case in the United States. Julius and Ethel Rosenberg were a married couple convicted of spying for the Soviet Union. They leaked top-secret information about American sonar, jet engines, and nuclear weapon designs. In 1953, the Rosenbergs were executed by the United States federal government, making them the first American civilians to be executed during peacetime. And one day in San Francisco, I received a phone call from a young professor who wanted assistance in putting together some kind of a presentation for his class about the Rosenberg case. I agreed to help him. And he was going to come home and we made a date. But I felt uncomfortable to just have a man come alone to my house. So I called Judy Binder, my writing partner, and asked her to come over, that he was coming over to present an idea about writing this presentation for his college classroom. And so she came over and Paul Richards came over, the young professor, he is now my husband of 40-something <laughs> years. That's incredible. Uh, yes. So the three of us wrote the story of Ethel and Julius Rosenberg, and it involved Paul reading 1,000 pages of transcript. And we only used transcript for the dialogue. Wow. And we put it on and performed it at three different colleges in the Bay Area. Much later... I received word that a Jewish theater company in Canada was going to produce the play. And so Valerie came with me to witness it. And then later, where was the other? Texas. That's right. A school teacher in Texas, a theater teacher, decided to put on the play. And so we traveled to Texas to go see it. It was very exciting. That's wonderful, because that's a story that people don't really know the real truth of that story. I mean, I've learned it, but I learned it by, 
I think, a play or a movie, but people don't really know. What was it that pushed you forward to the front line regardless of the outcome? Well, raising my family. That was my major focus, and that's what I was doing, so I kept on doing it. But in the meantime, I also had all these other concerns, and raising the family and pursuing the social change were all one thing. Wanting to create a better place for your kids to grow up in. Yes, in the process. And today I'm very involved still with my more limited energies with radio work. I put on three programs a month at the Vallejo station, the community station here, Literary Dialogues, which is a series of interviews that I do with writers and poets reading from their own works. La Raza Chronicles, which is a Latino program once a month on KPFA, and Cover to Cover, their literary program on KPFA once a month. So I still produce radio every month right here on my little computer. (laughs) And my husband helps me quite a bit, Paul, with the technical work. He's very advanced in computer skills. And I'm working on a new anthology of poems. It's going to be called Out of the Blue. Do you miss those political activist days? Because now things are so different. A lot of it's on the Internet, and there's demonstrations, but not like there were. No, I don't miss it because I don't have the energy that it requires. So much energy. And now we are confronted with an enormous problem, which is the sustainability of the earth, which is about human consciousness. Is that what you're writing poetry about now? Well, I'd like to read you some, and maybe you could decide what I'm writing about. That would be lovely. Yeah. Yeah, we'd love that. This poem is called Love Thy Neighbor. Love thy neighbor, the ones with tattoos on their necks and faces, or shaved heads, or covered by yarmulkes, turbans, hibabs, or backward baseball caps for a team you don't like. Love thy neighbor, the wavy-haired, springy-curled, puffy-headed, shaven, bald, and straight-haired hanging down long, or standing straight up the ones who moved in one gender and then changed. Help thy neighbor, whose garbage cans stay out too long with long-neglected weeds, lowered window shades decaying, and entry stairs sloping down. The single ones with noisy kids that laugh, wail, and whine. The ones with walkers, wheelchairs, and canes. Give a smile. Lend a hand to pull us all up, all up, all the rugged rainbow way up. This is the first poem I ever wrote in 1969 to Roque Dalton before going to fight in El Salvador, Havana, 1969. Mass media, I adore you. With a whisper in the microphone, I touched the mass belly against mine, like on a rush hour bus, but with no sweat and no embarrassment. Don't die, I whisper beneath the call to battle, my love of man in conflict with my love for this man. Women die too, 
They let go their tight grip on breath and sigh and sigh to die. They say Tanya died before Che. I saw her die in a Hollywood movie. Her blood floated in the river. I stand in the street in Havana. There are puddles here, but few consumer goods to float in them. Here the blood is stirred by the sacrifice of smiles to armed struggle, a phrase and an act. They leave one day and they are dead. Death to the known order, birth to the unknown. Blood, blood, blood. The warmth of it between the thighs soothes the channel the baby fights and tears. I stand by a puddle in Havana, a woman full of blood not yet spilled. Can I spill blood by my own volition? Now it flows from me by a call of the moon. A woman mopping her balcony spills water from her bucket on my hair my breasts, and into the puddle. The question is answered. How special is it that we get to have a piece of history be told live in person? Absolutely. And someone who is from the Bay Area, I mean, she did all of this based here in the San Francisco Bay Area, which is absolutely phenomenal and holds holds true to who we are here, I think. And she was a part of how it all kind of got started. Don't you think, Susan? Yeah. And she did it all with two kids in tow, Valerie and Greg, and she kept persevering no matter what. And that is yeah. beyond impressive. And she was one of the original women who fought for women. <laughs> she, yeah. she stood up for us. She had opinions. I could have just listened to her forever. She was so eloquent in her poetry. It was so great to have her read some of the poetry, wasn't it, Susan? It was really beautiful to have her read the poetry. We were and so speaking lucky. of beautiful, Jay, who do we have on our next episode? Well, next time we have a very special episode. And... It's super secret. So you'll have to listen to find out. (laughs) (laughs) So secret. Susan, where can they find that episode? You can find the episode on Google, Spotify, or Apple, or wherever you get your podcasts. And subscribe so that you're notified every time we have a new episode. And also go back to the archives and listen to the older episodes because we're on season eight now. So we've done a lot of wonderful interviews with a lot of very interesting people. So many episodes. And we also have very amazing content on our social media. If you haven't gone there, please go follow us so you know when this special secret episode's coming out at Beyond the Fog Radio on Instagram and on Facebook. And that concludes this episode of Beyond the Fog Radio. Until next time, take care now. Bye-bye. Thanks. Bye. Thanks. Bye.
Beyond the Fog Radio would not be possible without the amazing help from Tim O'Shea, Tim Johnson, Arliss Hayes, and our wonderful Connor Chang. We would also really like to thank our media team, Jaden Robertson, Elizabeth Johnson, and Shelley Bradford-Bell. I want to thank our partner, San Francisco Magazine and the Park James Hotel, and our amazing sponsors, Bill O'Keefe, Michael Baines, and Brenda Wright. Beyond the Fog Radio, all rights reserved, 2023.